Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Where do you see yourself five years from now? That's a great question for someone who didn't have an ambition to be in this position, right? Could you see yourself running for statewide office? Anything is a possibility. I'm not going to hold myself back from anything. Any position that interests you? I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Rivera? <laughs> Treasurer Rivera? Secretary Rivera? I think they all sound good. <laughs> it's a very basic human thing to want to improve our conditions and also to care about each other. At White Electric, a coffee shop in Providence, a group of workers banded together to make a change. It was just kind of like a fantasy at the time, like, hey, what if we bought the business? Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. Michelle San Miguel is off this week. We begin tonight in Central Falls, Rhode Island's smallest city, perhaps best known for its big problems, poverty, education, housing, crime, and COVID. Its mayor, Maria Rivera, knows many of those challenges firsthand. She grew up in the city and has struggled to make ends meet, and like many residents, didn't speak English. Despite those obstacles, Rivera is in many ways today a success story. And as Michelle San Miguel reports, she wants to take the city with her. I think the biggest fear here in Central Falls has to be trust. Trust for different reasons. They're undocumented. There's language barriers. They don't trust the system. Mayor Maria Rivera spent her first year in office working to earn the trust of the people of Central Falls. She says she does it by showing up. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, how are you? Thank you. You're welcome. On this Thursday afternoon in January, the mayor was handing out at-home COVID-19 test kits. There's an urgency to get tested. The city of 22,000 people has had the highest rate of COVID-19 cases in Rhode Island. Hi, you're welcome. Look at you. You're always so active. I have to. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Many people say to me, we haven't seen a mayor who has been out there speaking to the residents face to face. What you see here <laughs> in a blazer with dress pants, this is not where I want to be sitting at City Hall. I need to be out there helping the residents of the city. You said you were anxious about sitting behind a desk all day. I do. I get really anxious because those who know me, I'm not in this position because I was sitting behind a desk and people were coming to me. I'm in this position because I was out there and the residents of this city knew me on a personal level. This is why I'm in this position because they trusted me and put me here. Do you, Maria Rivera, having been duly elected to the office of mayor of the city of Central Falls? In January of 2021, Rivera was sworn in as the first female mayor of Central Falls two years after becoming the city council president. Congratulations. For Rivera, being hands-on at times calls for directing traffic at a COVID testing site. On other occasions, she's wearing personal protective equipment as she talks with people who are waiting to get tested. One of her biggest challenges so far 
reducing the spread of the virus in a densely populated city of triple deckers. It's no secret that Sancho Falls was the hardest hit community and why. When you have two and three families living in an apartment and you're asking them to do something that they can't do, we need to find a solution to that. We were asking them to isolate, they couldn't isolate. How could I ask somebody to isolate in a household when they have 10 people living in an apartment? This was an elementary school here and it hasn't been open for a long time, like 15 years. Rivera envisions this former school building being converted into apartments along with 11 other unused properties. That's a lot of idle space in a city that's just over a square mile. If I can get these 12 properties and convert them into housing, we can have about 200 more apartments here in the city. But it's a challenge because I need to acquire these properties. If I want to acquire these properties, it's going to cost about 4.4 million. I have a budget of $19 million. I can't take out $4 million to acquire these properties, which is why I'm having conversations with everybody at the state level and try to get the site acquisition. If they can help us with the site acquisition, I can guarantee you that we are going to have more housing here in the city. The current housing stock needs attention too. According to the city, more than 95% of the housing units were built before lead paint was banned in the state. Rivera says the number of children who've suffered lead poisoning has increased during the pandemic since children spent more time at home. A lot of these houses were built in the early 1900s. Landlords are unaware that they have lead in their homes, which is why we are addressing this issue and taking it upon ourselves to make sure that we contact the landlords. We bring them into housing court, not because we want to penalize them, but to have a conversation with them and make them aware of what the issues are and connect them to the resource to bring their property up to code. Rivera has high hopes for the city she first called home when she was 10 years old. Her parents worked at a painting factory in Central Falls while she was growing up. She says she never imagined she'd one day hold the top job in the city. I grew up in a family where you get married and you dedicate yourself to your husband. You find a job and you just stay in that job, which is what I did. I got married to my high school sweetheart I had my two kids, just worked full time, went to college, come back home, take care of the family, go back to work the next day. Didn't have anybody around me to talk to about politics or what working in government was like. That all changed when Rivera got divorced and became a single mom of two kids. She decided she wanted to become more involved in her community. You know, I'm in a household with two incomes and all of a sudden I'm in a household with one income. So I wanted to do more. The first thing I did was join the board of the school that both of my kids attended. And after that, I kept saying to myself, I want to do more. You know, I want to continue getting engaged. I want to meet other people. In 2014, Rivera attended the Rhode Island Latina Leadership Institute. And soon after, people were encouraging her to run for office. One of the biggest things you had to overcome was your fear of public speaking. Yes, and when I joined uh, the Leadership Institute, they ask you, what is something you want to overcome? Write it on a piece of paper, don't tell anybody. And by the end of the 10 months, we're hoping you can overcome that. And mine was public speaking. By the end of the 10 months, I hosted their anniversary event. I was the, the public speaker. <laughs> First, I'd like to thank God and all of you for being here. It's a good thing Rivera, who's 44, no longer fears speaking in public. She does it a lot. I'm filled with immense gratitude, but my heart aches as well. The responsibilities of the job can be daunting, says Rivera, but she says the support of her loved ones keeps her going 
including her father, who passed away in 2013. A photo of them hangs beside her desk, and his memory fills her with emotion. He was not, he hasn't been part of this, but I have a picture of him here because he was always that one person that always said to me, you have to believe in yourself. You have to do what you want to do. Just believe in yourself. Don't let anybody hold you back. There have been times where I doubted myself and I, I questioned certain things and I dreamed with him. And it's him telling me, like, you're okay. You're okay. Just continue doing what you're doing. Few things have made her question herself more than when she announced while she was mayor-elect that she was bringing in a new police chief from the force in Providence, Anthony Roberson. That was probably one of my biggest challenges, right? A challenge that makes me emotional. But why? Why does it make you emotional? Because it made me doubt myself. I'm coming into this position and I'm making changes that I had never had to do before. People were mad. The residents of the city, some of the residents of the city, the police department, they were not happy with my decision. I had been following Colonel Roberson's work for like three years. And I really, really admired the one-on-one -on -one contact he had with the community in the city of Providence where he worked. And that's what I wanted to see here. I wanted to see that engagement. I want to have a community where residents feel comfortable with the police department. I want to have a community where a police department feels safe and feels comfortable with the residents of the city. And that's what we've done. The transition to a new chief wasn't easy, says Rivera, but she says she's happy with his leadership. Yeah, I had to meet with the union, speak with the union, speak to them about trusting me and just giving me the opportunity. And I said to them, just give me six months. And in six months, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable. Hold him accountable. If this is not working in six months, we'll have another conversation and you can help me hire somebody else. And in six months, after those six months, I can tell you that I think the department is content. Under Chief Roberson, Central Falls became the first community in the state to train all of its officers in nonviolence. Rivera counts that among her successes. Another is helping pass a bond referendum to build a new high school. Despite her accomplishments, she says the needs in the state's poorest city remain great. You can use these for your employees. You appreciate this. Okay. So helpful for these days. She recently stopped by several businesses with Commerce Secretary Stephen Pryor to distribute COVID tests along with information about a small business grant. She had, a, she had a hard time with her business. I know. Still have it. Still have it. Still have it, but we're going walking. The hardest challenge for me as mayor for the city has been our budget, right? There's a lot of need in the city. There's a lot of things that I want to get done. There's a lot of things the residents ask me for that I can't accomplish because of our budget. Where do you see yourself five years from now? That's a great question for, for someone who didn't have an ambition to be in this position, right? I am truly overwhelmed with the amount of people that have reached out to me to ask me, what is your next step? You need to start getting ready for your next step. My focus right now is leading the city and accomplishing what I want to accomplish. Could you see yourself running for statewide office? Anything is a possibility. I'm not, I'm not going to hold myself back from anything. Any position that interests you? Uh, I like them all. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Rivera? <laughs> Treasurer Rivera? Secretary Rivera? I think they all sound good. <laughs> Up next, 
Longtime Rhode Island politician David Cicilline recently visited Ukraine before the Russian invasion and cybersecurity attacks. In a story we first aired last November, the congressman spoke about his beef with big tech, giants like Facebook, Amazon, and Apple, a David versus Goliath undertaking. He also led impeachment proceedings against the 45th president, Donald Trump. All right, okay. Now we're this mob of what I describe as domestic terrorists breached the Capitol. And you're watching it thinking, this can't be happening in the United States of America, the greatest democracy in the world. On January 6th, Rhode Island's Democratic Congressman David Cicilline was in his Washington office, advised to shelter in place as the insurrection unfolded at the Capitol. Later in the day, one of my colleagues came to my office because he had been evacuated from his office building. And we began to, you know, work in that moment on articles of impeachment. Donald Trump did not once condemn this attack. Cicilline took center stage as one of the managers of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. The congressman, who's a defense attorney, became the prosecutor of a president. This was a breathtaking dereliction of his duty and of his violation of his oath as our commander-in-chief. It's not the first time Cicilline has faced down a powerful politician. He ran for mayor of Providence as an early challenger to the colorful and corrupt Buddy Cianci. Cicilline won that mayoral race. And I announced my candidacy and everyone said, you're crazy to take on this guy. I mean, he was pretty ruthless. And, it was, you know, his reputation for that was very well known. Congressman, you're not afraid of a fight. Where does that spirit come from? You know, I think I've just always instinctively just done what I thought was right. If it's unpopular or people where I'm battling a powerful force, you still, you know, get in the fight and do everything you can. And my parents instilled in me at a very young age to, to stand up for what you believe in and to not be afraid. I have two wonderful parents. I have uh, three sisters and a brother, so I'm one of five. A mixed marriage of sorts. His mother, Sabra, is Jewish, and his father, Jack, is Italian-American and Catholic. While growing up, Cicilline witnessed his dad, a well-known attorney himself, defend many mobsters, including the head of New England's most notorious crime family. Did you uh, ever meet Raymond L.S. Patriarca? Yes. Um, you know, only, I think, once. Uh, and what was that like? You know, I was young. He was, you know, a client of my father, so it wasn't, you know, I didn't... I mean, I always understood that my father represented people accused of very serious crimes. Because, I mean, that was his job. The integrity that that requires, you know, our system of justice absolutely requires, a, you know, a prosecutor to do his or her job and a defense lawyer to do his or her job. And out of that adversarial process comes justice. And my father used to always say, I mean, if we didn't have criminal defense lawyers, you just left it up to prosecutors and police to decide who would go to jail. With that in mind, these days, Cicilline is in full defense mode, taking aim at big tech to ensure the American people are getting a fair shake. The purpose of today's hearing is to examine the dominance of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Simply put, they have too much power. As chair of the House Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee, Cicilline is leading the charge to make social media more accountable. This will be a battle of our lifetime. You know, you look at the history of the battle between democracy and monopolies. It's the story of America. And the problem is our antitrust laws 
were written during the railroad and oil monopolies. After conducting Congress's first intensive antitrust investigation in a half century, Cicilline has introduced bipartisan legislation, a suite of five bills to challenge the way digital market platforms do business. Congressman, consumers love ordering on Amazon. They love posting pictures of their pet on Facebook. We all Google every day. These have been game changers. And why, people are going to say to you, why are you going to change this, my, my everyday life? These four companies essentially have monopoly power. And what they're doing is they're crushing innovation, they're acquiring their competitors, they're engaging in very anti-competitive behavior. And we have always supported competition as a, as a model in our economy because competition brings more choice, more innovation, better quality, lower prices. And the monopoly power of these companies is particularly dangerous because it's based on this ca surveillance capitalism where they're just collecting all of this data and then using it in a way to manipulate behavior and to benefit advertisers. Cicilline says the recent testimony of the Facebook whistleblower was not news to his committee. Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. Their investigation turned up the same information. Facebook has a business model built on highest engagement of consumers. And as it turns out, divisive, provocative, untrue, hateful content has the most engagement, and they make the most money from that engagement. So they have no incentive to curate what's on their platform because they're making a ton of money, and they're going to fight any change to that. And we see the consequences of it. January 6th is a consequence of that, of the spread of misinformation. Part of the reason we haven't been able to defeat COVID-19 is because of the spread of misinformation. You know there's going to be people who will say, politicians are doing this because they don't like what, what people put out there about them. Everyone is allowed to post anything they want. That's the freedom of speech by the person who does the posting. But after that happens, Facebook then takes that information and makes a complicated business decision of how to apply a set of algorithms that will maximize its reach, will amplify the most dangerous and toxic material. Very complicated, though. Even some of your fellow legislators, your colleagues, don't really understand it. They're back at MySpace and you're talking way beyond that to TikTok. Absolutely right. And that's why I think these social media platforms have benefited from congressional inaction. It's complicated. It's a difficult market to understand. They're complicated business models. And frankly, we're now in the, having the responsibility to really walk our colleagues through what we found during the investigation, what this legislation does. With the majority of Americans getting their news from social media, Cicilline says these digital platforms should be held to the same standard as other media outlets. We have a system of slander and libel. So if a newspaper publishes something which is untrue, we have a court system that provides a remedy. That doesn't exist for social media platforms. You can put on the most untrue thing, they can amplify it, and you can't do anything about it. Congress hopes to change that through legislation, but Cicilline admits with most Americans getting their news from social media, it will be an uphill battle. The titans of social media are opposing it with all their firepower. In many areas, we're behind our competitors. And so you look at what these platforms are spending millions and millions of dollars in campaign contributions, in lobbyists, doing everything they can to defeat any reforms because they have generated profits never seen in the history of the world from this ecosystem, they're going to do everything they can to stop it. And so we're also battling this enormous 
lobbying effort with virtually unlimited resources. The rough-and-tumble world of politics has always fascinated Cicilline. He was class president at Narragansett High School, and he had an unusual hobby as a kid. I was, used to go to school committee and town council meetings when I wasn't old enough to drive, so my parents would drop me off and pick me up. I really did understand at a very young age that, you know, if you were going to make a real difference in the world, politics was really the way to do it. At Brown University, he forged a friendship with a famous politician's son, John Kennedy Jr. Together they formed the College Democrats. But it's another member of the Kennedy clan who holds place of pride in the congressman's Pawtucket office. Cicilline says he purchased this actual campaign poster of Robert Kennedy at the Providence Flea. He's my hero. Why? I have always been a huge admirer of Bobby Kennedy. I think he represented kind of what you should be in public life. He was a, a champion and a fighter for those who didn't have a voice. Cicilline found his voice after graduating from Georgetown Law. He became a state rep and then served two terms as mayor of Providence, the nation's first openly gay elected mayor of a major city. It was important to me to be honest about who I was as a gay man because, you know, we still live in a country, sadly, where it's legal to discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation. I know when I was mayor, there was always this question, you know, is he tough enough to be mayor of Providence? But uh, I think I always benefit when people underestimate me. Today, at age 60, the congressman does not rule out a run for the U.S. Senate. I hope Jack and Sheldon stay there for a very long time, but if they ever decided to leave and I were still in office, it's something I, I would love. And he admits that his very public life has changed the dynamic of his personal life. If you have a relationship or you're married or have a partner and then you get into politics, I think it's fine because, you know, presidents who have really busy jobs have, are married. And I think it is difficult that once you're in politics to begin a serious relationship because you say to someone, oh, like, I have to go to six events tonight. Do you want to come? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, for a couple of nights. And then, like, you know what? And I, I've had the occasion where people are like, you know, your job is actually more important to you than a relationship. Do you feel a little wistful? Yeah, I mean, I think my generation, I think we're the generation that just missed it, you know? And there are people who are my age who do find a partner and get married, but I, I don't know that I'd ever get married at, you know, kind of this stage of my life. While politics remains the center of his life, it seems in many ways it was meant to be. Just listen to who his neighbors were growing up during summers in Narragansett. Jack Reed's was right next to my grandparents, I believe. That's Senator Jack Reed. I think Gina's was just a few houses away. That's former governor, now Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo. So it was all in the same neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. Only in Rhode Island. Only in Rhode Island. And then Gina used to live right around the corner from me on the east side. So yeah, only in Rhode Island. Yeah, one degree of separation. Exactly. Okay. Finally tonight, we meet a group of employees who added the title of owner to their aprons. They now run a small coffee shop in Providence called White Electric. It's Rhode Island's first co-op cafe. Contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew recently spent time with the workers turned owners to find out why and how they took on this tall order. You're just going to your cafe and you know, you, you go into like a Starbucks or something, just get a cup of coffee and you just don't really think of the workers who are making your coffee. For Danny Cordova, like those challenges caused him and many of his co-workers to start a small revolution at his workplace, the White Electric Cafe in Providence.
It all began in 2000 when the cafe opened in what was once a storefront of an electrical appliance repair business. It had the words white electric painted across the top of the building and that was their, you know, I think just a little bit of their sense of humor. It said, okay, let's call the coffee shop White Electric Coffee because it already had this kind of cool painting on it. Chloe Chassing is one of the cafe's longest serving employees. She was there 17 years ago when the shop moved to its current location on Westminster Street. When I first started working uh, for the coffee shop, I don't think I thought I would still be working for it many, many years later. In 2020, however, the combined impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the global reaction to the murder of George Floyd caused Chassing and the larger white electric staff to take a hard look at their own workplace. We have 30 high schools right across the street from us. And, you know, there was like a lot of people like it's it's pretty much like mostly uh, uh, people of color, mostly like Hispanic, black people, Asians. And we kind of wanted a workplace here that kind of re that reflects the rich diversity that Providence has always had. So the staff wrote a letter to Tom Tupin, owner of White Electric, asking him to hire more diverse employees. The main thing that we wanted to make sure as all the stores and shops were putting up Black Lives Matter signs that it actually like meant something and that it would mean something going forward. They also criticized Tupin for not hiring candidates of color in the past, asked him to make the shop wheelchair accessible and offer health care and sick days so that employees don't feel pressure to come to work sick. We really weren't sure like how many people would sign it and we were very overwhelmed that all these people signed on to it, including former staff. So it ended up being like about 40 people who signed on to it, which was really, you know, encouraging to think like, okay, all these people care about this. The owner installed the handicap ramp, but Chassing says the other request was met with backlash. There was some retaliation and uh, the shop was closed and everyone who had signed the letter was laid off. And she says the only two people who hadn't signed the letter were going to be kept on to train replacements. While they felt this was unfair, rather than file a complaint with the Labor Department, Chassing says they decided to move on. We kind of took a long view and we thought, okay, instead, let's try and like get everyone their jobs back and form a union. We reached out to Tupin for an interview, but have not received a response. He did, however, tell another media outlet that the employee's letter was untruthful and misleading, and he disputed its characterization of him. Tupin also said that he shut down the coffee shop after the letter in July 2020 to meet with workers and a mediator. In August 2020, they requested a voluntary recognition of their union from the cafe's owners, which was granted. But one month later, they received an email from owner Tom Tupin saying he had listed the shop for sale. In the email, he suggested that the union members consider purchasing it themselves. It was just kind of like a fantasy at the time, like, hey, what if we bought the business? And it was just like, pretty much an impossibility at that time. Impossibility turned to reality through fundraising efforts. The union, now known as CUPS, or Collaborative Union of Providence Service Workers, was able to get the capital needed to buy White Electric, becoming the state's first cooperatively owned cafe and one of a handful of worker-owned Rhode Island businesses.
Today, White Electric is back to a fully functioning cafe, driven by the seven original members of the co-op and an ever-growing roster of probationary members who, after a six-month trial period, will have the opportunity to become owners themselves. We all have a stake in this business. We all, we obviously want the business to be doing well. You know, it's not like we, you know, bought the business and we're all just like, okay, we, we did it. We're just gonna sit around in a circle and just sing kubaya, we, we did it. It's not, it's not like that. Everyone still needs coffee. There's still a lot of work here that needs to be done. White Electric does not currently offer its employees health care. As for the co-op's profitability, owners say they expect to break even this year. And that's our broadcast for this evening. Please remember to download Rhode Island PBS Weekly's podcast, which is available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly.